antidote to tyranny is knowledge. And acting with courage to defend our most basic rights, life, liberty, and property. Dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Mack. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Peter Mack. I am the host and creator of this show, and I'm thrilled to be back on the air. I created the show oh, about eight years ago, and um, my very first guest is one of my two guests tonight, Mark and Rose. He's a good friend and someone whom I'm honored to share the microphone with. And another guest of mine I don't know quite as well, but I also have great respect for him, is Stefan Molyneux. Um, Hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Seth. Is that that's uh, that's pretty good. Uh, I will take that. <laughs> well, feel free to correct me. Okay, and Stefan has been. Uh, or shall I go by Steph? Um, yeah, Steph is fine. Steph is fine. Okay, and uh, Steph is in uh, Ontario, right? Ontario, Canada. That's correct. Okay, and Larkin is in Pennsylvania. And Larkin, are you hearing me? Okay. Yep, I can hear you. Okay. Good. Okay. We can all hear each other. That's great. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, uh, as I said, I started this show several years ago, but this is sort of the resurrection of it. I uh, got the offer to be here on Liberty News Radio uh, several weeks ago, and I'm thrilled to be a part of this uh, network now and to bring you the ideas that I have. And uh, those are my guests, and I'm hoping that Larkin and Steph will be regular guests on the show because I... As I told them when I asked them to be on the show, I think I'm really the facilitator of the, the ideas that they are, articulate so well. And uh, I asked them to be on tonight, and we're just going to chat for at least the first hour and talk about how our lives sort of intermingled at this point in time and uh, give you a sense of our thinking in terms of our philosophical and ideological approaches to life. and. Um, if you've read about the show at all, the show's dedicated to freedom, and so we'll be talking just about, you know, exactly what that means. And um, then maybe part, uh, the latter part of the show, we'll um, see if you want to call in, if you're listening out there, and uh, talk to us. Uh, a little background of the show then again, as I said, I started it some eight years ago, and I was on a, a local station in Liberty, Missouri, I think appropriate town for this kind of show, Liberty, Missouri. Uh, from uh, late 2001 until uh, 2006, and uh, the show was in those days dedicated to, I said, the promotion of individual rights as exemplified in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And I certainly am still a staunch supporter of individual rights, and uh, but I've evolved just a little bit from uh, the support of the other documents. Mm. Declaration of Independence is still a pretty darn good document, I think. Uh, obviously, the founding document of this country, what we're going to celebrate one week from tonight. Um, Constitution, uh, a little less concerned for nowadays, and uh, although I would love it if our government would adhere to the Constitution, because I think it would be far more limited than it is. But um, maybe we'll just jump in and uh, see how Larkin and Steph feel about uh, talking about their lives. They go back in terms of their evolution of thinking about freedom and so forth. Steph, since I know you less than Larkin, uh, maybe if you wouldn't mind starting uh, and go back as far as you need to in your life and just tell tell us uh, how you got interested in this whole issue of freedom and how you got to be the uh, creator of Free Domain Radio, uh, one of the most popular podcasts on the internet, and uh, just sort of bring us up to speed if you can. 
Well, sure. I'll I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, uh, I uh, got into philosophy and we got three hours. I'll talk really slowly then. <laughs> when I was a gleam in my daddy's eye, my mother said. Um, no, I, I got into philosophy in my mid-teens. Uh, I was, uh, like most people um, who have been interested in, in this aspect of philosophy, I came in through the objectivist air hatch, uh, through uh, Ayn Rand's uh, writings, and, of course, through Ayn Rand, you get to a host of other thinkers. Um, you get to the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, you get to Murray Rothbard. You get exposure to uh, to stateless society or anarchic uh, ways of thinking. And uh, I really dug deep into that. Through that, uh, I got into philosophy as a whole, and I spent a good deal of uh, my 20s studying that uh, at uh, graduate and uh, undergraduate level in, in uh, a variety of universities or colleges, I guess you'd call them, uh, in, in Canada. And uh, all of that can kind of fell by the wayside. I, I went into a business career and um, uh, co-founded a company and grew it, and I worked as a chief technical officer for uh, many years and then... I went to another couple of other companies. But uh, in my early 30s, philosophy began to really clamor back at me. Um, I was achieving a good deal of professional success, but there were aspects of my life, particularly my personal life. My relationships weren't particularly satisfying, and some of them, I think, were just not good at all. And so philosophy and psychology and, you know, the, the old commandment of Socrates to know thyself uh, began to come back to me, and I began to really dig into philosophy less as someone who was absorbing the thoughts of others and more, you know, if I had to start with a blank slate, what would I be able to come up with? And that led me down a very exciting path. I began to uh, uh, write articles, which again got posted on uh, Lou Rockwell or Strike the Root at com, and got into some good correspondence with some very smart people, started reading the articles as podcasts, started podcasting from my car on the way to work because... <laughs> You know, when you're a workaholic, no time. You know, if I could podcast while I'm peeing, <laughs> I'm sure that would be my next stop. But, um, uh, and so I, I never really thought of it as anything other than a very engaging hobby. But uh, people uh, said they found them useful enough that they wanted to donate. Uh, so I opened that up. And uh, after, I guess, about a year or a year and a half of doing that, uh, I decided to take the leap and try and make a living in this crazy world of new media philosophy podcasting, a niche occupied, I think, mostly by myself and maybe three other guys in their basement. And so um, uh, I began to, to do that, and some speaking engagements began to open up. Uh, I was uh, the closing speaker at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum in March, and uh, uh, our good uh, uh, friend uh, Larkin and I will be sharing a stage in Philadelphia uh, this upcoming July the 4th, and that I'll be debating with Michael Batnarek how small uh, a government, how small should government be, or how small a government should we have, and uh, we'll be doing that on Sunday the 5th in Philadelphia. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's been about two years now. I have been uh, working uh, uh, in philosophy and uh, as a result in, in libertarianism, in anarchism, uh, and uh, a variety of other topics that I deal with on my show, particularly in the realm of, of ethics, is, is I think where I've really tried to uh, uh, light as many fires as possible because I think that in the absence of a rigorous ethical system, everything just becomes kind of opinion and willpower in the Nietzschean sense, which I don't really <laughs> think is a very productive way. Uh, to to organize either a society or really your own thoughts. 
So it's been about two years. I've been full time. I love it. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It is an exciting roller coaster compared to a relatively stable earlier part of my career. But uh, you know, once you taste that kind of deep liberty in your own life, uh, you can't let it go. And what you want to do is share it as much as possible with others. So that's, uh, I guess, the brief bobsled resume of <laughs> of how I uh, how I became uh, came here tonight. Great. And I can't remember who directed me to your website, Steph, but uh, just for the listeners out there, again, it's Free Domain Radio, and um, Steph has uh, hundreds of podcasts, I think, that he's recorded now. Is that correct? And um, you can listen to them for free, or you can subscribe like I do, and I certainly recommend that you do that. Uh, it's well worth it. Um, I'm not quite sure what the levels are. I subscribe at the level of uh, $20 a month. And um, I'm thrilled to, to, as I said, to have you on the show with me, and I hope you'll be a regular guest. But also, um, I'm indebted to you from just listening to some of those podcasts. I've listened to not that many, maybe 20, and I, I watch your videos now on um, Strike the Root, Mandatory Molyneux. Yes. And I uh, really enjoy those. So uh, I just encourage anybody, uh, while you're listening to this show, in fact, you can pop over to that website, freedomainradio.com and take a look there. Of course, uh, we hope that uh, maybe you'll wait till after the show to listen to the podcast. It's kind of hard <laughs> to listen to both of us at once. But uh, So then I take it you, you both are going to be uh, meeting uh, for the first time, you and uh, Larkin, next uh, Saturday. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, he was kind enough to send me a copy of his novel. Um, and I am working my way through that and enjoying it, so um, we will get a chance to meet, uh, I guess, uh, in a week. That's great. Yeah, and I I rank going downtown uh, somewhere around getting a root canal with no uh, Novocaine, but <laughs> I am thrilled to be going downtown two days in a row because when I heard that Stefan was going to be debating Michael Badnerick. I mean, that's the sort of debate that's actually interesting and worth hearing. And oh, that is going to be a good debate. Money, I'm really looking forward to it. My money's completely on Stefan because there is no justifying. As, Mike, as, as much as I like... Larkin, I Joff, but yeah, we've got a commercial break coming here, folks. Larkin, you're going to be right back with us. And Steph, just hang on, folks. We'll be back in just a minute after the break. Hang with us. You're listening to the Peter Rack Show here on Liberty News Radio. our most basic rights, life, liberty, and property, dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Mack. Welcome back to the Peter Mack Show, folks. Thanks for tuning in here to the debut of this show on Liberty News Radio. I'll be here every Saturday night from 9 to midnight Central Time. And uh, my guests today are Stefan Molyneux, Steph he goes by, and uh, Larkin Rose, and Larkin and Steph are going to meet next week in Philadelphia. Larkin said he likes to go downtown as, about as well as he likes to have a root canal, and uh, I thought I would just clarify for folks that if you happen to be in the Philadelphia area, um, Larkin and Stefan will be there next uh, Saturday, July 4th, right? 
Okay, Larkin, uh, yeah, I think, uh, as you mentioned, a debate between Steph and uh, Michael Badnerick. I have a lot of respect for, Mike, for, for Michael Badnerick, too. Um, and I think that'd be a wonderful debate. Um, wish I could see it. Maybe it'll be recorded. So, Larkin, maybe you can take us back as far as you need to in your life and kind of give us a, a sense, maybe stuff I don't even know about what you got interested, what got you interested in the freedom issue, and um, sort of bring us up to speed in whatever way you want to. Well, the the funny thing is, I expect July 5th to sort of be a flashback for me, only both voices are going to be the ones that were inside my head several years ago because I was constitutionalist, conservative, you know, libertarian-leaning, um, pretty much raised that way and had a bunch of siblings that were in that direction and went through the uncomfortable, basically, deprogramming, um, which was a lot my own doing, subjecting myself to think about uncomfortable things, but going through the process of trying to justify the little tiny government I wanted there to be. And so it's really, it's really convenient being a constitutionalist because it's really easy to argue that government is horrendously inefficient and stupid in everything it does. And to have almost everyone else on the political spectrum being arguing that government should do everything under the sun, whether they're Republican or, or Democrat, it makes a really easy position to defend because the Republicans want a you know big police state that's horrible and abusive and oppressive and inefficient and, and nasty things, and it's easy to point out why that's bogus and stupid. And the leftists want a big nanny government to take care of everybody and make sure everything works fine. And it's easy to point out that that doesn't work and it's stupid and, and counterproductive. But most constitutionalists don't usually get stuck in the position of having to argue in favor of government. Like, they're always arguing less, 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 less government. Don't have government do that. Get rid of that agency. Get rid of this. And so it's fun to watch them when they come up against the idea of, well, how about get rid of the whole thing? And they're just not used to thinking about that. And I wasn't used to thinking about that when I was a libertarian, because that's not the direction that libertarians ever have to argue in until recently, when you get wacko extremists like Stefan out there saying, um, maybe we should all the way be free, and maybe we are all the way free. And... So it was a, it really was an uncomfortable deprogramming process to give up, even though it was such a tiny little government I wanted. It was so limited, and it was only going to do these little things that were really necessary and really important, and we just had to have government do that. That it, it, it felt, you know, it, it seems now like why would it be so hard to give up that tiny little thing and move to... How about if we all treat each other like human beings and we don't have a master at all? But it was a drawn-out, uncomfortable process. And it just it felt existentially scary because it's letting go of, really, the religion that everyone is raised in now. It has nothing to do with what they call God. It has to do with government, which is the new God. It's what people actually worship. It's what they really believe in. It's what they look to 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 fix all the problems of the world. So it really was a, a deprogramming from the 
the cult of government. And, you know, I know I I got a front row seat to watch you, Peter, go through a lot of the same things, and I've seen a bunch of other people go through it. And I'm happy to say some people actually blame me for dragging them through it, and, you know, plenty of people did it before me. Mm-hmm. But that process of letting go is such it's such a, a weird positive and scary thing at the same time to all the way let go of the thing that you think makes civilization possible. Right. And so even though, you know, it took me no time to get the libertarian and we want this tiny little thing, it took me years and years to give up the notion of, well, we have to have a constitution and we have to have a master that does this little thing and that little thing. Mm -hmm. And move all the way to, wow, you mean there's nobody above me? Like, we're all just adults and we treat each other like adults and... But but who do we run to? Who do we bow to? Who makes sure everything works out right? And coming to the conclusion that, well, either I do or nobody does. Like, people is what we're stuck with. And if people can't do it, an imaginary master isn't going to do it either. Putting one of those stupid people up on a throne is not going to help if people are so stupid that they can't interact in a rational manner. Taking somebody rational and giving them lots and lots of power is not going to help. But it, you know, for me, it just took, and I know for a lot of other people, it just took such a long time to give that up and say, yeah, I don't have a master and nobody should. Right. And Stefan, as you indicated in your um, introduction of yourself, you've written and read about psychology and and your wife uh, practices uh, some psychological counseling, I take it. Does she still do that? Yes, uh, she does, actually. She has uh, started her own clinic and now runs that. And um, all right. So, yeah, and I, I myself went through um, psychological uh, therapy or, or counseling for a couple of years and uh, found it to be just an absolutely invaluable uh, part. I mean, the, the, there is a little bit to me that is missing from some of the contemporary libertarian movement or at least what would be called the mainstream libertarian movement, that it's very outward focused. It is around, uh, you know, practical or political or economic knowledge, human action in the real world. I don't think there's as, as much of an emphasis uh, on uh, self-knowledge. And I think that leads uh, leads the movement astray at times. And that's something that I've tried to bring to the forefront in the shows that I do, um, since, you know, philosophy encompasses uh, all human knowledge, right, from science to psychology to art to literature and so on. So I've tried to sort of have a show with no barriers towards the pursuit of knowledge. And if the knowledge goes into self-knowledge or psychology, the unconscious and so on, then we go there. Because um, I think that it's really hard to free the world if we don't understand the power of psychological defenses and resistance to truth, right? Because we've had the truth uh, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, uh, philosophers uh, and uh, and freedom fighters of all stripes from pre-Socratics onwards. We've had the truth for generation after generation after generation, and we quite literally and liberally get our asses kicked all over the beach by uh, pig-ignorant, violent, ugly, and stupid people. And uh, I think that having the truth, we think if we, glab- if we grab this glowing crystal called the truth, that we are going to hold it aloft and all of mankind is going to go, ooh, ah, you know, and just say, oh, well, I'm going to change and, and go with the truth. But empirically, that's just not what happens. What happens is 
people get angry, they get defensive, they get frustrated, they get weird, they get creepy, they get trolley. And I think I've really tried to figure out, since having the truth is not enough, since having very simple arguments like the non-aggression principle or taxation equals force, which have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, having the truth is not enough to change the world. So there must be some other factor uh, or a series of factors that needs to be explored rather than the simple communication of basic empirical, ethical, and economic and political truths. So I've definitely focused on psychology as well. Hey, with that thought, Steph, we'll be back in just a minute, folks. You're listening to the Peter Mac Show with Stefan Molyneux and Larkin Rose is my special guest. We'll be right back here on Liberty News Radio. Stefan? Yes. Are you hearing everything okay? Uh, yeah, Larkin's a little quiet, but uh, I can hear everything just fine. Okay. Is the Can you hear the music when it starts, too? Uh, no, I, I didn't hear the music when it started. Sorry, I, I until you interrupted, I didn't know that we were heading for a break. Oh, no, it's totally fine. Um, here, I'm going to let you talk with, uh, with Peter. Hold on one second. Oh, sure. Hey, Steph. Yo. Can you hear me? Yeah, I just, the, you know, they play the music for the commercials, and I just, I didn't want to cut you off, but I wasn't sure you were hearing it. And I no, didn't, I didn't. Sorry, I didn't hear a thing. I'm, I'm pretty experienced at, at cutting myself off when I hear the music, but I didn't hear anything come up. Oh, okay. So maybe they, well, Colin, are they not, are the guests not able to hear the music when it starts playing? Yeah, because he's, I, I thought he would hear it, and I didn't want to cut you off, Steph. I just don't want people to miss. No, listen, Phil, if I can't hear the music, honestly, don't do, do completely cut me off. Uh, that's no problem at all. Uh, I'm, I'm here to help the show, and uh, that's yeah. no problem at all. No. Yeah, okay. Markin, you, 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 can you hear the music? Uh, yeah, a little bit. It's a little distant, and, you know, if I'm talking, I can't. But if, um, I, will, I will turn up my audio a bit to make sure that I can, uh, I can hear it. Okay. Otherwise, I'll just, if you don't hear it, because I hear it really loudly, I'll just jump in and say, okay, thanks, I hate to cut you off, but, you know, we got to, because the, the breaks come really, I mean, it seems like we, we're, we've got lots of time to talk, but it <laughs> Yeah, no, listen, to, totally fine, just uh, interrupt away, that's, that's no problem at all. Okay, good. Okay. show the debut of my show here and I'll be here every Saturday from 9 to midnight and we're talking about really how my guests and I uh, came to this kind of weird philosophical notion that we should be free and we're at least I we haven't even defined what that is yet and we'll get to it with time but I just want to sort of lay out 
where we each came from. And um, Stefan, you were talking about um, sort of the relationship between psychology and, and principles of freedom, which you've come to articulate, in my opinion, so well. And because it's all, as you said, wrapped up in philosophy, obviously. What I was wondering, too, is Larkin made the point that, you know, he, he talked about giving up this idea of, you know, where he came from and where I came from, which might be a little different than you, you know, the libertarian tradition, small government, constitutionally limited government. I came out of that that uh, that thinking also, and he gave that notion, you know, giving up. And I, as soon as he said that, I imagined, you know, a child letting go of their parents' hand and saying, you know, I'm free now. And I wondered if you could talk about the relationship, because I know you've written about this at length far more than I've had time to read about or listen to, the relationship between a person and, you know, authority figures in their life, like their parents, and how it's possible, it seems to me a, a tenable theory, that we sort of uh, take that uh, authority figure in our lives and sort of it's easy to sort of project it onto government or government can sort of step in and fill that position as we become adults. And, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if I totally blown that relationship. No, no, I think I think that's uh, that's uh, admirably put. Uh, uh, now, it's not just parents, right? I mean, it's it's um, uh, uh, teachers and and to some degree priests and and other authority figures in a child's life. But the the fundamental question is what is it is the government and what is it for? We all know the technical, you know, monopoly of the use of force, uh, uh, the initiation of force in a geographical area. But to me, the government is fundamentally around two things, and those two things are things that are deficient within the family. The first is the government is supposed to protect us from violent predation, you know, from the thieves and the rapists and the killers and so on. And, well, where do these people come from? Well, psychologically and scientifically and statistically, they come from extremely violent homes. So you don't just get a guy who wakes up from a happy home one day and says, hey, I think I'm going to go become a killer or uh, going to go beat people up and steal their stuff. So it's a, a, a tragedy of parenting that gives rise to the first horde of predators that people feel we need the state to protect us from. So that's one aspect where the state grows out of the family deficiencies. But I think a much more common one is that the government exists for many people because they feel very insecure about negotiating for themselves within their own life. So why are there state-protected unions well, because people don't feel comfortable negotiating with management, and so they want to defer that to someone else. Why do professors have tenure? Because professors tend to be people who come out of a pretty lonely adolescence, and they just haven't often developed the skills to negotiate. So I think if we were to have you know, healthier families, then obviously we would have fewer violent people, fewer criminals, and the justification for the state would diminish. But on the other hand, or I guess in extension to that, if we had families and, and schools and other institutions that children were around that actively taught proactive and confident and positive negotiation skills, then people would not think about deferring or, or they would not feel so insecure in the face of, of negotiating with, quote, authority, right, whether it's a, a boss or someone else who has authority in your life. They wouldn't feel so fearful of negotiating that they would want the government to come in and do it for them or, or support an agency like a union that was going to do it for them. So the stronger and happier and healthier and more loving and more gently children are raised, in my opinion, the less and less the state is going to be 
uh, necessary. And so that's sort of why I focus on a lot of family issues, a lot of parenting issues, and, and so on. Right. And Larkin, I know, you know you're, you're a parent also, and you've talked to me about letting your daughter um, make decisions. And I remember when I was visiting you back in December, we, we had a brief conversation about once when you said you were going to, you know, you're going to go outside, and, and I think your wife said to Alyssa, you know, get your coat, and she didn't want to get it or something, and, and your attitude was, let her go without the coat. She'll figure out that, you know, it's not... It's not. We don't tell her to take her coat just because we're her parents. It's because you know we want, we we know what's going to happen when you're outside and it's 10 degrees and you don't have a coat. Can you comment on that? And what what is your sense about what Steph said? You know how, how, where authority comes from. I mean, if not from a you know psychological, but just from your own experience, because you talk a lot about authority. I know in in your books. Yeah, I think uh, people not only use authority as the cop-out for having to live their own lives and make their own decisions and do their own negotiating and all that, they also use it a cop out as a cop-out for raising their own children. And I love to I explain why authority is self-contradictory and insane, and people say, well, you have a kid. Are you telling me you're not authority? And I say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Um, I'm bigger and stronger than my kid, and sometimes I physically don't let her do something she wants to do. You know, the obvious example is the kid's three years old and wandering out on the road. You pick them up. You don't sit there and try to talk them out of it. But there's a huge fundamental difference, and the, you know, the coat makes a perfect example. Is, you know, she's walking out of the house. Tessa says, grab your coat, because she knows he's going to be cold. She doesn't say that, grab your coat, because this is a rule that I, authority, am laying down, and you are morally obligated to obey me, whether you understand the rule or not. And when she says, I don't know, I'll be fine, I say, okay, let her be fine, she'll figure it out. Because for a parent to say, you know, the the old, because I said so thing, is it's not just a rip-off of, for the kid, it's a rip-off for the parent because it's, it's like saying, well, I don't really need to have a good reason because I'm the parent. And, you know, whenever we can, I want to be able to explain why we're saying this is how it's going to be. And there's some things that, you know, we don't want to tell her about that are unpleasant or that sure. you don't think sure. she can fully explain or whatever. And we'll just say, here's how it's going to be. You don't have to like it. You don't have to feel an obligation to you know, obey us. And that that's the mm-hmm. distinction in authority is the mm-hmm. guilt trip because we made up this rule and you didn't obey. Well, if the kid can't understand why the rule is there, why on earth would they feel an obligation to obey? It's like saying you're not a- allowed to wear a purple hat on Wednesday. And the kid thinks, well, why should I feel bad about wearing a purple hat on Wednesday? I have no idea why I shouldn't do that. And the whole notion of authority is it, what what's get pound, gets pounded into their heads by parents and, and schools and, and priests and all that is that if you disobey, you're immoral. It doesn't even matter what you disobeyed. It doesn't matter the reason for the rule. And what it does is it trains them not to be human beings. It trains them not to think. And the ultimate outcome is 
it's sort of ironic because these you know authoritarian church says this and this and this is a sin don't do that it's evil you'll burn in hell and so it tells the kids that and they're growing up and suddenly they find hey now i'm grown up i have an apartment of my own i can do those things and nobody will know the only reason they ever had to not do them is the authority said so but haha now they can't find me they don't know if I'm obeying the rule or not. Nobody ever said, the reason to not do it is because of, it's not going to help you. There's going to be a problem for you. Mm-hmm. And when parents say, because I said so, it's usually because they can't think of a good reason. And it's a disservice to the kid because all it teaches the kid is, we'll blindly obey the big important guy who says he's authority unless you can get away with it. And why wouldn't they try to get away with it if the rules look arbitrary to them. So they grow up and grow out. So people often, you know, ask me, so you're not authority? And I say, no, I don't tell my kid obedience to me is a moral obligation. Just what a weird thing to say. Like, you have to do what I say, whether it's good or not, whether it makes any sense or not. And you should feel bad about it if you disobey a rule, even if you can't for the life of you figure out why that rule exists. Mm-hmm. It's it's insane, but that's how most parenting works, that obedience to me is above everything else, no matter what the rule is, no matter whether you understand it or not. And then kids grow up, and they're left with nothing, because all they had was blind obedience to a big guy, and they can't think for themselves. They don't know why any decision's better than any other one. Right. right. Well, unfortunately, we have to... It's blind obedience to the upcoming commercial. Hang with us, folks. My special guests are Larkin Rose and Stefan Molyneux. We'll be back here in just a minute at Liberty News Radio. Tonight here on Liberty News Radio, I'll be here every Saturday night from 9 p.m. to midnight central time. I appreciate your listening tonight, and um, I think you're going to find um, these two gentlemen as the show unfolds and the weeks unfold ahead that they have a lot of... Uh, very insightful information to offer you, and, and I think you'll see a different, uh, we've already alluded to that difference, I think, between all the shows out there that talk about, you know, containing government and getting government back to what it should be and that sort of thing. Um, and there are plethora shows, and, and I was one of those shows before, and, and I, I think, you know, I would love it if the government were that small again, but but we're talking about the philosophical idea of authority and what that means in terms of whether there should be any government at all. At all. And Larkin, you were talking about parents and how when you say to your child something, you know, you're trying to explain to them that what you're asking them to do is ultimately for their own good and not simply because you're telling them to do it. And I thought about how easy that authority of do it because I told you to do it is transferred from the, the parent to the teacher. And as, you know, as a college teacher, I see students coming into my class and they, after 12 years of school, you know, they've adopted these habits. They sit in the same chair every day, even though, those are, even though nobody's telling them to do it. And they look to me as, you know, the authority figure in the classroom. In a sense, I am, but I try to explain to them that my authority is, is pretty narrowly circumscribed. I'm only there for the purpose of teaching that thing, and as long as they don't interfere with the class, they can do whatever they want. They don't have to come to class, you know, and that's really, even in college, it's amazing to me to look at an 18, 19, 20-year-old and say, 
you know, don't come here for me. You're paying money. Come here because you get something out of it. And if you're not getting anything out of it, then I'm not doing you any good, you know, so then there's no reason to come. Can you, can both of you discuss, uh, you know, Steph, maybe jump in, uh, that idea of a transference of the authority from that, that parent figure to the school and how that goes on through adulthood and what, what that leads to in society? Sure. It's, uh, I mean, I, I, I think Larkin's uh, entirely right uh, um, <laughs> because he agrees with me. Therefore, I know, right? <laughs> but um, uh, no, it's, it's uh, authority uh, is, is obviously a valid concept uh, and something that is very useful in life. I defer to the authority of my dentist and my doctor and my accountant and so on. Sure. But authority is a resource, right? It is a resource for, for people to use. I go to my doctor because say, he'll give me a pill to make me feel better. I say he's a resource for me to achieve my objective, which is health. Uh, of course, the government is not a resource for people. The government is a domineering, overbearing, <laughs> violent, uh, and heavily propagandized uh, structure. And so how is it that people get the idea that authority is not a resource to help them achieve their goals? And the authority has value to them only insofar as it does help them achieve their goals. If my doctor prescribes that I drink, I don't know, engine oil for an infection, then he is not a resource to help me achieve my goal. If my a mechanic puts uh, antibiotics into my car, in this, right? So the idea that authority exists to facilitate or accelerate our, our uh, achievement of our goals is something that... Uh, good parenting, in my opinion, and good teaching is all about. Uh, my listeners want to be happy, and uh, philosophy, as best as I can, encourage them to pursue it and, and help them over obstacles. Uh, I can facilitate them to achieve their goal of happiness. Right? Reason equals virtue equals happiness. That's the traditional uh, arc. And it is really uh, clear to me, at least, uh, and I've spent a lot of time around kids. I've worked in a daycare. I you know, <laughs> I really have spent quite a lot of time around kids in my life. The degree to which children are uh, fearful of their parents, are resentful towards their parents, uh, feel bullied and dominated, not listened to, not respected, or treated as a kind of livestock. This is not all parenting, you understand, right? But, but it is depressingly common, and there's simply no way that a state school could function. Having 30 children in a classroom being dominated by one person who's usually kind of weird and bossy, at least in my experience, I went to schools in three different countries, um, you simply could not have a state system functioning if children were raised to be curious and energetic and uh, uh, intelligent and skeptical the way that children are, the way that children are born. So you kind of have to break the will of the kids before you even deliver them to school. But school then just takes that and, uh, you know, as <laughs> Spinal Tap says, turns it up to 11, right? That resentment, that indifference, that feeling of, of insignificance and of being bullied and being told what to do. And never uh, the schools don't say... You know, that Microsoft question, right? Where do you want to go today? They say, here's your lesson. You learn this. You repeat that. You write down this. You go here. You sit in this desk. Now you can go out to play. Now you can come back. Next hour, you study this. I mean, the kid is like a chocolate eclair on a conveyor belt. It's ridiculous just how little respect is given to the children. And then they graduate into a workforce where they're told when to punch in, when to punch out, what to do, what to type, how many widgets to produce an hour, and that you never talk back and you never expect authority to be a resource to help you achieve your goals. You are really merely a means to the end for authority to achieve its goals, which is dominance and profit. So uh, I think that it is a really strong continuum. And it all starts, uh, you know, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world used to be a saying 
that was well known um, and it uh, I think is very powerful in understanding that the state is the final manifestation of an authoritarian and dominant way of uh, uh, disrespecting children. It finally flowers into statism, but the state is an effect of the family and that's why it's impossible to reason people out of their belief in the state because they haven't been reasoned into their belief in the state. They've been traumatized into it, and that's why I think psychology is so essential. But, uh, the, Go ahead, Larkin. The notion that you know you have this human being and the potential of all the things it could be, all the things the person could achieve or do, like all these goals they could have, and authority first thing it says is, you don't get to decide your goals, we'll tell you your goals. Here they are. And, you know, it starts from the parent who, you know, most parenting, being authoritarian, the, me- the reinforcement, the you're good, relates directly to whether you did what you're told and obeyed the rules. And then you go to school, and then you're graded, you get a number based on whether you did what you're told and obeyed the rules. And then you get a job, and your pay comes based on whether you did what you're told and obeyed the rules. And I think you go through that, and basically you're trained to, to, to forget whatever goals you thought that you might want. You know, they don't matter. Your goal should be obey the rules and do as you're told, and that's what you get rewarded for. And I think this is why it's so disturbing for me and a gazillion other people to go to take that final step into, wow, I own myself. Because after a lifetime of being measured by whether you obey the rules and do as you're told, suddenly you're, somebody says to you, okay, now you're a human being. There are no rules and no one's going to tell you anything. And you just sort of stand there like, well, but what are the rules? There aren't any. Like, you have to figure out what you're going to do. Well, tell me what to do. No. And just being stuck in a position that all your life you've been trained to never be in that position. It's not up to you. Your goals don't matter. What you, know, what you think your life should be about couldn't possibly matter less in the setting of authoritarian indoctrination. It's all about you fit the agenda of the state or the school or the parents or whatever it is. And then when suddenly you get let out of the cage and you realize there aren't any rules, like there are ways I should behave, but I have to figure them out. And first I have to figure out, what on earth am I doing? Like, what am I trying to do? You know, I'm standing on this planet. uh, If nobody's telling me what I'm supposed to do, you mean I have to, like, figure out something worth doing or something? And that's why it's such an alien feeling to be raised authoritarian and then give up the notion of a master where now I'm just me. And if kids were raised to begin with to think, what are you interested in? What feels like an accomplishment to you? What do you want to do? What do you want to learn? As if, you know, the parent is there to help them bloom into what they already are not to smash them into some shape that the parent decides they should be in, but to let them grow up as, you know, the most miraculous thing in the world to me is the concept of free will. It's something you can't give a machine. It's, you know, of all the amazing things in nature, the thing that completely baffles me is free will. How the heck can something have the power 
to choose. And yet, right off the bat, authoritarianism smashes that and says, you don't, you don't get to choose. Here's what you do. Obey the rules. Do as you're told. And if you start with the idea that this, this little thing knows almost nothing, but it gets to decide what it's going to be because it owns itself. I, even I as a parent, don't own that thing. It's not mine. It belongs to itself. It's a sentient being. It's pretty ignorant to begin with, but if you let it grow, it can turn into a human instead of a robot. I want to ask you both uh, about child rearing and your philosophy a little more when we come back from the uh, break here at the top of the hour, folks. This is the uh, Peter Mack Show. I'm glad you're listening here at Liberty News Radio. And uh, Stefan Molyneux and Larkin Rose will be back with us in just a minute. Take a look at freedomainradio.com and also larkinrose.com over the break. Gentlemen, I'm glad you're tuned in to Liberty News Radio tonight, Saturday, June 24th. This is the opening of my show here on this network, and I'm thrilled to be back on the air. I did this show about uh, six years, five and a half years at KTXL in Liberty, Missouri, and uh, been off for a couple of years, but I got the opportunity to be back on, and as soon as I got the opportunity, I had to get in touch with my two gentlemen, my two guests here, Stefan Molyneux and Larkin Rose, and Stefan Molyneux is the creator of something called Free Domain Radio, and there are hundreds of podcasts there. Um, you can listen to them. It's free to listen to them, but I suggest that if you, if you really like it, as I do, that you consider donating on a regular basis. Larkin Rose has a website, larkinrose.com, L-A-R-K-E-N, I'm sure you know Larkin. Many people misspell your name. Misspelled your name is L-A-R-K-I-N. L-A-R-K-E-N. Rose, just like the flower, R-O-S-E. Larkin is the author of a number of books. The most recent one is a novel, and it's entitled The Iron Web. And I have to tell you, Larkin, um, I don't like fiction. I've always had a hard time with fiction. The, uh, the longest fiction book I've ever read was uh, Oliver Twist, and I had to read it in ninth grade, and I hated it. But when I got your book, I had no idea what to, to expect. I mean, I had known you for you know several years, and you sent it to me here back in May, and um, I, I didn't know what to expect. But I gave it a shot, and I, I have to tell you, I couldn't put it down until I read the whole thing. And... Um, you know, I still don't like fiction. It's not nothing against your book. I just I'd rather have somebody present the facts. But it's a it's a very interesting story, and it really does catch you by surprise at the end. So, take a look, folks, at uh, LarkinRose.com and FreedomainRadio.com, and you'll learn a lot more about these gentlemen than you learned during the first uh, part of the hour here. We're talking about uh, the relationship between one's you know, what happened to a person as a child and how one learns to respect uh, or bow down in front of authority. And um, I want to ask both of you um, to comment on, on a, an idea I have about, about authority with respect to teaching, and I suppose, and, and comment on how you think it might relate to child rearing, like a lot of people, there were many, many times in school when I was forced to learn something and I would say, why do we have to learn this? Do you, you have that experience, either one of you? Yeah. Oh, continually, for sure. Yeah. Okay. We all had that experience. It occurred to me, being a teacher now, college teacher for some 13 years, uh, the career of which is winding to a close here at the end of the summer, um, 
sometimes we do have to tell people, you know, learn this because I tell you to, even as a parent. But it seems to me that an important element which would support the, the, the idea, the way you are, I think, as I understand it, you're wanting a child to see his parent or teachers and so forth, to see authority figures as a resource rather than somebody who simply has this, you know, God-bestowed right to order them around. And that is the element of trust. If you if you tell a student who's teaching, I teach math, and if you tell them, okay, you, you don't you don't see why you have to learn this now. But if you trust me, you will see a little bit down the road, a week or a month or something, why that's important. And if the child has the experience from from the earliest stage on of having that notion of having given trust to this authority figure, whether it be a parent or a teacher, and the trust is realized. That is, the person says, or the, the child says, okay, I didn't know why I had to do this. I didn't know why my parent was telling me to stay on the street, but I get it now. And so then the next time they ask me to do something, I maybe I'll trust them a little bit. As long as that trust is, is realized, and that is they, they, they see the value of it, and then over time, you know, you can get to the point where you, you trust somebody more. I mean, criticize that or comment on that either or both of you if you would. Uh, that's just something that occurred to me in my experience as, as a teacher and something I tried to embody as a, as a college teacher and so that hopefully people will see not, don't just learn it because I tell you, but because I will show you in due time while it's, why it's valuable. Sure. I mean, you wouldn't want that to be a principle that people would just have to accept up front. That, that kind of trust uh, has to be earned, right? Uh, in a free society, it obviously would be. It never has to be earned with the state, right? Because the state doesn't give you those choices. Right. But yeah, I mean, of course, right? I mean, if if my dentist, uh, you know, I, like most people, I didn't do much flossing in my 20s because I was too busy enjoying myself. But, uh, you know, when you sort of go, hey, you know, I can sort of see why it's a good idea now. And the dentist sort of explains why it's a good idea and gives you goes, goes through the consequences, the pluses and the minuses. And, you know, you do it and then you go, hey, you know, flossing really is a good idea. And I'm really glad that uh, uh, they told me to do it. And, and so now when my dentist tells me to do something else, it could be the Macarena. I'm like, OK, hey, you tell me and I'm, I'm believing it because uh, he has earned my trust uh, through, uh, you know, consistently taking care of my teeth. So, uh, yes, absolutely. I think that would be great. I've also thought that um, uh, there's a lot of things that we fight against uh, as uh, people into the liberty movement and so on that are such clear manifestations of uh, bad parenting that it seems almost amazing that it hasn't become up as a big, a big an issue before. And I'll give you just one minor example. You can tell me if it makes any sense. This idea of the social contract, oh, heaven forbid, you know, if we could spend, we could easily spend the rest of our lives trying to fight the social contract uh, not nonsense with people, you know, this idea that uh, the government owns everything and, and they, they charge you rent uh, and you agree to the rules by staying in the country and if you disagree with the rules and blah, 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 you can leave. And I mean, that is, it's such a, an anti-empirical notion and such a crazy thing to, to believe um, that it, it really can only come out of, you know, the, the, the bad dad to take a, you know, maybe it's mom too. But it's the bad dad who says, you know, when you're in my house, you know, you do as I say. And if you don't like it, you can leave. 
right? I mean, because the parenting, when it comes down to rent-seeking, parenting is pretty pitiful in that standpoint. And nobody, I think, if nobody had ever heard that argument uh, uh, portrayed in their own family or, or, you know, in other people's families, if that argument simply didn't exist, where parents didn't say, well, you obey me because I pay, you know, I own this house and I pay uh, for your food and board and, you know, if you don't like it, you can leave, but as long as you live under my house, you'll obey my rules. If obedience was not something that you had to uh, um, provide to people because those people owned your environment, I just don't see how the social contract would be even remotely believable to people. And so I think if we look at the degree to which what we consider philosophical errors are so often uh, founded on just bad parenting practices, unjust appeals to authority on the part of parents, and not just because parents are bad, but because I think philosophers have done a really bad job of uh, helping to parents, uh, helping parents come up with good ethical arguments that don't involve authority, which is one of the reasons why. Uh, so I have these podcasts, I have these free books as well that are available on my website where I try to provide these answers to the problems of ethics without relying on authority or religion. Uh, but if we if we'd never heard those silly arguments about you know do do as I say because I it's my house and you can don't like it leave I can't imagine anyone would take something like the social contract seriously and the degree to which it is taken seriously seems to me almost entirely proportional to the degree that this argument is still enforced or in used in families. Yeah, and I think that the, the when the kid grows up or is being or fails to grow up when he's being raised in the authoritarian thing, and then he gets into the quote-unquote real world, I think most of the people try really hard to make there be a government authority to take the place. It's not, you know, as much as the individual tyrants exploit that for their own gain and power, people want it because it's the only life they know when they're raised under the, the authoritarian, you know, as long as you live by my rules, yada, yada, yada. They want to imagine the same thing because it's how they're used to dealing with something. And if they just get flung out into the world and suddenly they have to figure out things for themselves, it's too scary. So they fabricate a new parent. Um, right, right. But backing up to the, you know, the the classroom thing of um, just trust me from past experience. Trust me that later you're going to want to know this. I think even before you get to the specifics if they even notice the attitude that this guy is telling me that I'm going to want to know this later. It's not that he's going to want me to know it, to barf back on a test. It's that he's telling me it's actually going to be useful to me. And even just that, whether you trust the guy yet or have, you know, much basis to decide whether to trust the guy, just the attitude of, you're going to wish you knew this later, so you might want to pay attention, is huge. One of my favorite pet beefs of schooling is the teaching of state capitals. And my daughter, my daughter is homeschooled, and it's, just, it's so hilarious to me. All the kids learn state capitals. Of what value is that knowledge? None. Not the slightest bit of value for anybody ever. But all school yeah, particular gets conversation we had, Larkin. Sorry to cut you off. <laughs> okay, folks, we'll be back here in a minute with Larkin Rose and Stefan Molyneux. Stay with us. Dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone, here is Peter Mack. Peter Mac Show. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I have Stefan Molyneux, known as Steph, 
have Larkin Rose on the line with us, and um, Larkin Rose has a website, LarkinRose.com, L-A-R-K-E-N, and he is the author of a number of books, one of which is fiction, and Stefan uh, runs the, if that's the proper word, the Free Domain Radio website, FreeDomainRadio.com, and it's got hundreds of podcasts on there, so by all means, don't go to those websites right now. You know, listen to the show because I'm the authority figure. Anyway, um, Larkin, you were talking about one of your pet peeves, uh, learning state capitals and so on. So let's pick up where you were. Right. Just talking about the, you know, in comparison to teaching somebody and saying, you're going to, you know, this mathematical formula or whatever, right now you don't get why it would ever be of any use. But trust me, later on you'll be glad you know it because it'll actually come in handy for something. And state capitals that all school kids learn is just is one of my pet peeves because it's a complete waste of time. Of what value is that knowledge? And I guess you could sort of say, well, it's practice memorizing stuff. Or, well, how about practicing memorizing stuff that actually has some relation to reality? But recently we were driving back from a zoo and... and uh, my daughter, who's homeschooled, was there with two of her friends. Driving back from where? From a local zoo. Oh, the, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> you said something else. What? Okay. No, just a zoo. Sorry. Um, okay. And two of her friends who, who go to school, and they're learning the state capitals, and so we're quizzing them, and they're, you know, they're doing a good job. And I just uh, I, I refrain from saying, why on earth are you learning that? Um, but I did say, can anybody tell me what it means for a city to be a state capital? Mm-hmm. And they didn't have the foggiest idea. Mm-hmm. They didn't, like, they memorized all these things. They didn't even know the trivial, worthless thing that actually made a city the state capital, which is, right. that's where the government is of each state. Right. Right. And so it's sort of, you know worthless knowledge to the second degree. They didn't even know the one bit of trivia that actually makes it that. But just that setting of, you know, that example of you learn this because we tell you to. You know, never in a million years would a kid say, you know, I really need to know the capital of all 50 states. It's just it's not something they need. But if you go, if you start with the attitude of if you want to do stuff or accomplish stuff or or understand stuff, you're going to need to know certain stuff. And here it is. If it's again, if it's a resource that will help them do stuff, and they can understand that even if they have to like trust you for a while, that okay, I'm going to, I'll believe you that there's this this field of knowledge that it would be helpful for me to know, and that later on I'll wish I did. But just to have that, to have the attitude that it's there to serve them rather than you do this because authority wants you to know it. Yeah. It's just, it, it's completely, it's basically, you know, I tell people, is there anything, or I ask people, is there anything about your parenting style and what you want out of your kid that you couldn't get out of a programmed robot? Because you can get <laughs> obedience, you can get it to memorize stuff and spout it back, like... Is what you want a robot or is it a human being? Because if it's a human being, you don't get to have it be what you want it to be because it doesn't belong to you. If if you're just trying to program it into a thing to serve your purposes, 
you know, go invest in a robot and don't mess up a human being. And don't be a parent. Go buy a robot. If you're going to be a parent, realize that this thing's a human being just as much as you are. It starts out not knowing very much. But if it isn't going to be something beyond what you could think of to make it, then what's the point of it, you know, what's the point of that person being alive if all they're ever going to be is what you program them to be? And that's what authority does. It says, I'm going to mold you into what you're supposed to be. And when you take that away, the person thinks, well, nobody's molding me anymore. Now what? Because they're not used to being in the mindset of, you get to mold yourself. You get to decide what you're supposed to be. And that's just, like I said before, that's so alien to most people, like it was alien to me, because so much of society revolves around molding the people to be what they're supposed to be, whether you're talking about parents or schools or, you know, the way most companies employ people and and then finally government saying we'll tell you what to be we'll tell you where to work and what to do and what makes you a good citizen yeah and i I, sorry to interrupt but i I would also say that the reason that you end up with um stupid retarded brain stultifying exercises like memorizing state capitals is because the teachers are really bad right i mean in, in order to have a teacher who's going to find that too insulting for his or her intelligence, not to mention the intelligence of the students, you'd actually have a, have a teacher who was really excited uh, by, by knowledge and learning and willing to challenge preconceptions and willing to engage and enlighten the students and willing to be a continual learner himself or herself. But uh, I don't know about you guys. I mean, I went to, as I mentioned, went to school on three, three different countries, went to, I don't know, half a dozen schools, public, private, there was maybe one or two teachers who even aroused a spark in me, but the vast majority of everything that I've learned that has been worthwhile, I've learned outside of school. And I think that that is, of course, the huge barrier. It's just the, 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 the state is so crap at everything, but what it's the most crap at is uh, uh, bringing any kind of desire for, for knowledge and reason to students. And uh, that, of course, is the tragedy intellectually where all other tragedies grow from. That sewage that they pump into children's minds when they're young uh, just keeps them bored and indifferent and skeptical and hostile towards knowledge and tr- like real reason and knowledge and curiosity for the rest of their life. And that turns them into pretty efficient tax livestock And uh, until we can do something about that. And the internet is fantastic for that because we can have an education medium that doesn't rely on these crap state teachers. Uh, I think that's where things can go, but it's uh, yeah, it's still a ways to get there. Right. Steph, uh, if you haven't read it, and you may well have, I would recommend you get the book called The Case Against Adolescence. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it, yeah. I was uh, Because I've always been skeptical. I know that I can't remember who it was, but it was some uh, one of the uh, Enlightenment uh, um, guys was uh, uh, the, um, uh, the uh, what was he? the state um, astronomer by the time he was 11 or 12 and so on. And I, I think that would be just fantastic. Who's, who's the author again? I'll have to go pull off the shelf. I'll, I'll, I'll send you an email. Um, but the basic thesis is uh, that this concept of adolescence has only been around for about 100 or so years. And if you go, and it doesn't even exist in, in other cultures, you know, I mean, we're all familiar with it in, in Western society in North America here, the idea that, you know, uh, uh, around 
12 or 13, a person becomes what we call an adolescent about the time of puberty, and then they, you know, and they graduate from high school at 18 or 19 or whatever, and supposedly that's the end, although it seems to get stretched out longer and longer these days. But it's the idea that there's this um, artificial period between childhood and adulthood when people really aren't responsible, but they're kind of growing and people are growing at different rates. Well, this guy's thesis, and I'm sorry I don't have the author right here. I'll, I'll go grab it off the shelf while we're on break. His thesis is this, this, this artificial concept that was created about 100 years ago, and it, it really does a disservice to, mo to most kids because they're not, I mean, it's, I can't summarize the whole book real quick. I cast about to step on my keyboard here, so if we get cut off, that's what's happened. Anyway, um, the idea that they're separated from reality, you know, 100 years ago, people were, when they were able to, they were taking on adult kinds of functions and stuff at a relatively early age. Here's the music, so we got, well, anyway, we'll pick this up when we come back. Stay with us, folks. I'm Peter Mack, and we'll be back here on Liberty News Radio in just a couple minutes. Life, life, liberty, and property. Dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Mack. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in this evening, June 27th. 2009, the debut of my show here on Liberty News Radio, and I'm thrilled to be back on the air, and I'm thrilled to have Larkin Rose and Stefan Molyneux with me. So, we're talking about trust and authority and how we learn it in school. How does this relate, to, we've touched on this, of course, how does this relate to what we have here, that, you know, the fact that we have a, a nanny government or any government at all? Well, I would say that we don't we don't really know what life would be like. It's, it's very hard to conceive of life without a government because because state statism is so all pervasive, not just in our education, but in in our thinking. In our you know, it takes uh, as um, as Larkin was saying, it takes a long time to to dig these demons out of your head. You know these these uh, this magical thinking that you know constitutions and so on can all restrain the power of of evil men to do evil things. It takes a long time to get out of that way of thinking. And uh, it's high. I mean, maybe we'll never get out of it completely, but, you know, I think we've come a long way in the last little while. But what would life be like? You know, what would it be like if you could get a university degree by the time you were 12 or 13? What would your life be like if you didn't have to waste another, I don't know, what is it, 10 years or more? Uh, uh, in doing things that you just didn't need to do because everything was just so slow and retarded because of the state? What would it be like? What would human potential be like if you had 10 times the income that you have uh, at the moment, right? I mean, what would human potential be like? What kind of art would be produced if people no longer felt that they had to uh, appease uh, this, the, the prejudices of the majority in terms of their addiction to violence and and cheap sexuality and and uh, uh, cheap stimulus. Well, it's it's so hard to imagine, but the human potential to me would be uh, it would be even greater than the human potential that was unleashed between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Um, it would be a human uh, enlightenment that we just really can barely imagine now. Uh, the illnesses that we'd be cured, the um, the educational capacities that would be available, the love and happiness that would be. A part of our life uh, it would be so hard for us to imagine, but uh, that to me is what um, 
We're, we're fighting the medievalism of statism, right? The state is an institution that has been around since uh, before the Egyptians, right? And and we still, we don't build uh, pyramids with slaves anymore, but we still run society according to the same retarded addiction to institutionalized violence that characterized all of human history. And uh, the elimination of violence is the unflowering, or it's really is the flowering of human potential. And that's really what I'm fighting for is the new renaissance of uh, of a nonviolent uh, society, and uh, it would be something that would outstrip anything that came before, and I think that's uh, I think that's the goal. Yeah, and, yeah, and go ahead, Larkin. The amazing thing to me is that people people are so used to hearing about government solutions and and top down plans and programs to like, well, well, how does your system? deal with this or do this or that or the other thing and and they say that when you suggest no government and it they're so stuck in the authoritarian mindset that they always think in terms of well who's the guy who's going to make the plan and we'll all you know go along with it and make it work and that's automatically hugely limiting like, if the plan is, I don't know what's going to happen because six billion people are going to each decide what to do, the potential is just completely unimaginable, like Stefan was talking about. just You can't even begin to imagine all the things that would be invented, all the good ideas, all the... It's really easy to imagine what one doofus tyrant at the top running everything would do. And the sad thing is, that's what people feel comfortable with. Obama getting up there and saying, I have a plan to do this. Oh, goody, he's going to make us all do the right thing so that we have a healthy economy and yada, yada, yada. Because they can grasp the concept of one bonehead with a plan that's going to be imposed on all of us, even though, how often has that worked out in history? Never. It doesn't work. What works is leave people alone and let six billion people come up with their own plan. And just the power in that is just unimaginable, and yet people are scared to death of it because they say, well, I don't know what those people are going to do. Yeah, you don't. You don't get to know what everyone in the world is going to do, and they aren't all going to be good little robots and do what one psycho at the top tells them to do. But if you compare the outcome of the psycho at the top model and letting people, you know, come up with their own ideas and their own solutions and their own creations, you know, compare the outcomes and then tell me if it's really worth it to know exactly what the plan is. If the plan fails every time when it's centralized, how about just dare to not know and see what happens? Just a quick aside, uh, Larkin and Steph. Um, I was watching a, a brief uh, video clip of Obama, and he, as you probably know, he's taken this so-called hands-off approach to what was happening in Iran, and I saw, I saw this clip of him saying, well, the one thing that we wish the Iranian government knew is it's not appropriate to deal with your citizens violently. <laughs> and actually, it's not appropriate for a government to use violence with its citizens. And I thought, yeah, I mean, that's that's the veil that we're trying to pull off with this show, and that's what you guys each independently are trying to do. We're trying to pull back that veil and say, wait a minute, when you talk about government action, violence is at the root of it. 
violence is at the root of it. It's, it's not, hey, come, please do this. It's do this or else. And, and it's just, that's so hard for most people to see because all you see is the, is the purpose, you know, or the alleged purpose of government, which is, you know, to protect our rights or do whatever activities. And, you know, for those of us that came out of the belief that government should be limited to protecting rights, but even that, it's hard to, it's hard to see that violence undergirds all of its activities, obviously because it has to be financed through violence, and, and then all of its actions are ultimately, you do this or else. Yeah, and, and how depressed do you have to be? I think that the, the state of, of human psychology at the moment is pretty much what's technically called dysthymia or low-grade depression. How depressed do you have to be to cheer at some vacuous himbo who's telling you he's going to make give your life meaning and make your country glorious and make your life perfect and forge a new tomorrow out of the manacles of this, that, and the other and build a bridge to the 29th century on the bones of hope. And like all the junk that comes spewing out of these idiots, these sophists, the banes of Socrates. How depressed do you have to be to sit there panting as someone else describes how great his guns are going to make your life? And, and how sad do you have to be to want some government to point guns at doctors to make them treat you and point guns at people to make them hire you and point guns at people to give you charity? How sad, how depressed, how empty do you have to be in order for that to be even remotely attractive? It's like the people who end up just wanting to get back in prison because they can't handle life. You know, a prison is secure. It's, you know, three square meals or the people who join the army for the same reason. It's, it's, if we have a human beings that are happy and excited enough about their life, they'd look at someone like Obama the way they'd look at a pickpocket. You know, it's like, I, I don't need a pickpocket to make my life fine. In fact, you're kind of a plague on the world. Right. Right. And if they're trained to not view themselves as being in charge of themselves, then it, it makes perfect sense. Oh, I'm going to have a great guy in charge of me. Well, why don't you be in charge of yourself? No, I. I mm-hmm. I can't be. I wouldn't know what to do. You know, I picture a, a grade school classroom where all the kids are sitting in their seats and the teacher doesn't show up. And they're all just sitting there looking around, like, where is she? What do we do? Where is she? If they don't even know how to begin to think about anything remotely productive. All they're doing is sitting there thinking, well, who's going to tell us what to do? because they've never thought of that. And Americans are the same way. If they don't have some buffoon up there saying, I'm going to lead you, my favorite, we're going to lead you into the 21st century. Well, where were we going otherwise? (laughs) (laughs) There's an old... uh, There's an old... um, uh, He was going to skip eight of them. Sorry to cut you off, Steph, uh, just as we went into the break there. Back up, if you would, with that uh, 
Oh, no, yeah, no. sure. No, no problem at all. Dave Allen is an Irish comedian. I watched him as a kid. He's very funny. Yeah, the guy is missing a finger and does one of the best drunk imitations you'll ever see outside of your average Irishman. I can say that because I was born there. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so he's got this sketch about a, a soldier. Uh, he's a sergeant and he's got these 10 or 12 soldiers who he's supposed to whip into shape and train into a fighting machine. And he's he's yelling at them the whole time. I will be your eyes. I will be your ears. I will be your brain. You don't pee without thinking of me. You don't you know you just you don't eat without thinking of me i will tell you what to do and so on right and and this goes on for a while and then they storm the beach that they're supposed to do their military maneuvers on and and the sergeant gets shot right and so the, the and then the soldiers basically one of them walks in a little circle the other one sticks his head in the sand you know because they have no idea what to do without a leadership and i i just remember that as a really vivid sketch that i saw when i was a kid and of course i didn't realize what it really meant and why it stuck with me until many years later but um when you look at taking that leadership that's hollowed out people and filled them up with its own vacuous and predation and, and um, um destructive fantasies take away that leadership it's really hard for people, as, as Larkin was saying, to say, okay, what am I going to do if I can't worship someone, uh, someone's power? What am I going to do if I don't get to stay a, a sad child my whole life? What if I actually have to grow up, take ownership for my own life, learn to negotiate, learn to get what I want without uh, uh, voting and, and relying on other people to bully everyone and get it for me? What am I going to do if I don't have a national identity? A USA, USA, USA chant to fill up my emptiness. What am I going to do if I realize that my sports team isn't any different than anyone else's sports team? What, I, what am I going to do if I can't substitute geography and patriotism and uh, empty-headed obedience and adulation of the man-gods we invent to fill up our voids? Well, who am I going to be in the absence in all, of all of that? And for many people, that, that question is really just too terrifying to, uh, to consider. Yeah, it, it never arises. It, re, it remains, I think, suppressed because, it, yeah, be terrified. <laughs> Stefan, you remind me of, a, of my favorite line in one of my favorite Monty, Monty Python movies, and that was um, The Life of Brian. Did you Have you guys seen it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Life of Brian. And there's, there's this scene where, you know, Brian is the mistaken messiah, and there's this huge throng, and he's up on the second floor window, and he's like, he's like, People, you don't have to follow me. You can think for yourselves. And in unison, like 10,000 people go, we can think for ourselves. And this one lone voice raises his hand and he says, I can't. All right. <laughs> you are all individuals. We are all individuals. I'm not. Shut up. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. a brilliant film. It's a brilliant, brilliant right. film. Right. It is. I think you got to – people I meet either like Monty Python or they hate it. But, uh, well – Folks, let's see if anybody's interested in uh, talking to us and see if anybody's out there. Uh, let me remind you that we have Stefan Molyneux on the line here, and he is uh, the creator of Free Domain Radio and hundreds of podcasts there that you can listen to. Um, I encourage you to first listen to them, and if you like them like I do, then subscribe. That will help maintain Stefan and his uh means of supporting himself. And then Larkin is uh, an author. He's written how many books now, Larkin? Uh, three. Three, okay. Um, the Iron Web, going backwards, The Iron Web, and um, Taking the Dragon, the Dragon, and How to Be a Successful Pirate. Right. Say them again for us, would you? Uh, in frontwards order, How to Be a Successful <laughs> Tyrant was the first. Taking the Dragon, about my 
fun adventures with the IRS and the rest of the federal federal terrorist machine. And then the recent one is the Iron Web, which is fiction. Well, sort of fiction. <laughs> the story is right. fictional, but there's I think there's pretty darn much truth inside a fictional story there. So. Right. Right. Well, hopefully, hopefully that I, I would love to see uh, the Kicking the Dragon and, uh, become a movie about your life, and as well as the the fictional account, you know, the Iron Web. That would be that would be cool too. Well, guess what? If you want to call into the show, you can do so. There's it's a toll free number. You can call us at eight six six nine eight six news. That's eight six six nine eight six six three nine seven and you can talk to either one of these gentlemen or if you're so lucky to be in the Philadelphia area, they're gonna both be uh, why don't you tell us where you're gonna be in Philadelphia and this is July fifth instead of the fourth? Uh fourth both actually. Oh okay. Fourth the fourth is when the talk is. Okay, so Larkin you're doing your talk on the fourth and whereabouts in Philadelphia? Um I don't even know. Do you know the details yet, Stefan? Uh, yes, I do. Actually, um, on my on the homepage, I'm trying to lure people to my website, but on the homepage of my website is a link. Uh, I will just click it now. Uh, for more information, it's a link to the Facebook page. Uh, Larkin and I will be sharing the stage um, on July the 4th at People's Plaza at Independence Mall, 5th and Market Street. Philadelphia, PA, of course, and uh, that will be 3 to 5 p.m. It's Like It Rose, Walter Reddy, Stefan Molyneux, that would be me, Michael Badnarik, and then Sunday from noon till 6 p.m., or 11.30 till 6 p.m. at uh, Drexel University, uh, Michael Badnarik and I will be engaged in a Borat-costumed uh, cage match in a mud pit, so that will be quite exciting for most people there. Uh, and you'll be seeing a lot of that in slow motion on CNN uh, because I fight remarkably dirty. Well, why not? I'm an anarchist. Yeah, we'll go down down after all. <laughs> that's right. But I think he'll go down biting too, so that's all right. <laughs> so the event that you two will be at will be at the People's Plaza. Well, that sounds like, like a place celebrating freedom. But the People's Plaza in Philadelphia from 3 to 5 on July 4th. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. We'll be at the People's okay. Republic of Philadelphia. There you go, the People's Republic of the cradle of liberty. Well, at least that's what they call Faneuil Hall in Boston. But yeah, there you are, where the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were signed, right? And yeah. uh, and the wonderful thing is, uh, as a Canadian, I hear it's something called a tea party, which will be nice because I'm going to bring my teddy bear and my plastic uh, little cups and uh, everything. So that should be very nice. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, they're 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 about as nonviolent as a tea party, which is, I suppose, what the government wants at this point. And then, okay, I, I'm sorry, you went through it rather quickly, uh, Stefan. Um, on Sunday, July 5th, you're going to debate Michael Badnerick at Drexel University? That's correct. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and that's going to be from, it. Uh, well, it starts at sort of, uh, I mean, this sounds ridiculous because it sounds like we're debating for six and a half hours, which I could do, yeah. but uh, <laughs> I don't think that that well, would be man, something the audience would want. For five and a half hours and debating for a half hour or something. Yeah, well, uh, you know, get there at 11.30. Um, it's going to be, I mean, there's going to be a debate. And uh, uh, we, we've sort of briefly discussed it that we're going to try and have a pretty open format. I mean, some structure. Uh, and then uh, we're going to open it up to questions and comments uh, from the audience uh, about the debate or any other topic. Uh, and, you know, it's going to be a really engaging 
uh, brain spasm, which I think people will really enjoy. Uh, it's the kind of stuff that I did when I was in New Hampshire, and uh, it's really, really, you know, I don't like to be the the talking Darth Vader head at the podium. You know, it's really good to to let the audience. Uh, uh, you know, invite them to, because, I mean, there's nobody smarter than libertarians, right? I mean, they're just brain-cracklingly bright. So uh, they usually have some fantastic stuff to say and provide the toughest questions in the room. So uh, it's going to be a pretty open forum uh, for debating and feedback and, and a back and forth. Well, good. Well, speaking of uh, interesting questions from the audience, we have one. We have Greg from North Carolina on the line. So, Greg, if you're there, you have a question for Larkin? Basically, the, the going through that process and how did friends and family deal with it. And I just totally lucked out. I think a lot of people, uh, probably including my parents, thought I'd pretty much lost my marbles for a while. But they got to the point where they could talk about it and could understand the concepts and could actually have a rational discussion. And that was true of, of just about everybody I know. Um, you know, anybody I'd call a close friend, um, with, of course, closest friend being my wife. And the fact that, you know, I don't know what the heck I would have done if I had gone through this and she hadn't. I'm not sure I even would have gone through it if we weren't sort of antagonizing each other with ideas and mm -hmm. philosophical, you know, paradoxes, and then both sort of falling into anarchy at the same time. Uh, about the only tip I could give of the the few people I know, you know, not all that close friends, but the people I know who are sort of uncomfortable and try really hard not to talk to me about politics and things like that. For ages, I was really frustrated because it mattered to me a lot that they understand that I was right. And it took me literally years to come to the point where I realized it doesn't need to matter to me that whether they know I'm right or not. Like, if I know I'm right and they think I'm not, I don't have to be all stressed out about that and just, like, I'm going to be stressed out until they understand that I'm right. And so just sort of getting to the point of, oh, well, like, they, they're still in the, the, the status indoctrination mode, and that's kind of unfortunate, and... Sometimes I'll talk about it, and sometimes I won't bother. But just I think so often when you when you grasp a truth like this, you want to beat people over the head with it and say, "Look at this! Pay attention! This is really important." 
and that tends to annoy them and make them get defensive. And you know, I sort of think if I could meet me from 15 years ago, what could I possibly say to make the other me understand this faster? And I'm not sure there's anything I could. I would probably be a thick-headed, stubborn bonehead and argue with myself till I'm blue in the face. So I think sort of giving up that desperate attempt to try to make people understand it and just sort of, you know, make the make the truth available for the people who actually want it and occasionally put it in front of the people who don't and see if someday they go, hmm, maybe there's a point there. But finally giving up trying to bludgeon people over the head until they accept freedom and just sort of dealing with them as, you know, oh, well, they've been indoctrinated by this cult and I can't seem to get them out of it. I'll just sort of deal with them accordingly. Yep. Mr. Do we have another caller, just out of curiosity? Yes, uh, we do. There's another one waiting in the wings. Great. I mean, I've, I've gone into this in great detail in my podcasts and books, so I won't touch on it here. Uh, so maybe we can just go to the, uh, to the, um, uh, to the next caller. Okay, great. Uh, Greg uh, from Pennsylvania, if you're still there, thank you for waiting. I kind of got you out of order. I apologize. No problem. Uh, Greg, if you're there from Pennsylvania, go ahead. Do you have a question? or? Yes. Hi. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, hearing the discussion on parenting, and uh, I was curious, both from Larkin and Steph, uh, if you could discuss a little more about uh, guiding disciplinary procedures that you would use with children, both Larkin from your uh, experience and Steph from maybe some of your uh, theories and what you assume that you'll do with your daughter uh, as she gets older and you need to guide them with some discipline. Well, let's start with, uh, I think, Larkin, who has more practical experience than I uh, should probably go ahead and then I'll talk about all the theory, which I hopefully we'll be able to practice in the future. Well, it's the whole the whole notion of discipline is like what what's the actual goal? Is it I'm going to inflict harm on you because you didn't do what I told you to? Because I think that's that premise, no matter how you do it, is immediately really stupid. It's a bad idea. All you're doing is training them to be what you tell them to be, as opposed to. Uh, consequences for for example if they do if a kid does something that 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 annoys you or something you may just say well you know if you're going to keep doing this thing that annoys me we're not going to do the thing you wanted to do later it's it's basically something you could do with anybody adult kid anybody just say you know if you're somebody who's going to sit there and intentionally annoy me um i don't really want to take you to a movie later or something but if it's discipline in the context of basically how do I manipulate you into being what I want you to be, that's just immediately bad, however you do it. If it's because if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to get, ultimately, you want the, the, first, the kid to understand why this is a bad choice and this is a good choice for their own good. Now, of course, when they're two, they understand almost nothing. And so you have to sort of make lots of their decisions for them. But I think any, any sort of discipline or any sort of approach that is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish you. And the, the first punishment, the punishment that matters most is, 
I disapprove of you because you didn't do what I say. And I think that's just, it's counterproductive, it's stupid. All it accomplishes is annoying them and sort of making them feel hurt and unloved and, and all that stuff. Instead of treating them as if, you know, as soon as possible, I want you to understand why I'm not going to let you do this and we're going to do this this way and whatever it is that, you know, the decisions you have to make as somebody who's who knows more than them and has to control a certain amount of their life, as soon as you can get it into their head, you know, have them understand and agree that that's really better for them, do. In the meantime, I would never do it in the context of you're bad if you disobey me. It might be, look, I'm going to tell you, here's the deal. It doesn't matter if you understand why this is the deal, but this is the deal. If you do that, we'll do this. If we'll do this, then we're going to have to do that. But the whole notion of, of discipline, I mean, the word sort of carries the connotation of if you disobey, I hurt you. And I think the worst thing you could possibly do, and I think history is a really good indication of this, is teach people that obedience by itself is a virtue, no matter what the command is. And that's what most discipline does, and it's basically the cause of every war and holocaust in the history of mankind. So, yeah, I'm not big on that style of discipline. Stefan, are you going to jump in? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was just uh, finishing my notes on parenting because I think it's a good time now that I am one uh, to get that worked out. Well, yeah, I mean, there's this, this metaphor that's often used in, in statism, right, which is uh, uh, you restrain a kid from doing that which is bad for him and therefore, uh, you know, uh, a force or coercion or a physical restraint for that which is harmful to people is good and that's why we need the government. It simply restrains those who don't want to do blah, blah, blah. And I don't think that's specific to children, and of course it is rather insulting to be told that you're going to be treated like an idiot child for the rest of your life. But uh, to me, yeah, there's, there's physical restraint. Obviously, you, are, you have the, the care of this precious child, uh, and uh, you have to keep that child safe. You have to feed and, and clothe and keep them safe, and so you stop them from going into traffic, and you have to restrain them if they get overexcited, you grab them. But this is not specific to children. I mean, if, if I saw a blind man wandering into traffic... Uh, and he didn't hear me, a blind and deaf man, I would grab him and pull him back too because I know that he would thank me if he knew what I was doing and I also know that my daughter is going to thank me for restraining her from wandering into traffic when she gets older. She just doesn't quite understand it, you know, when she's when she's younger. So uh, so to me, that uh, that's a pretty inconsequential part of parenting. You make the environment as safe as possible and if you do have to grab them when they're going to run into traffic, that's what you do, but that's not specific to children. I hear music, which means I have to hit pause. You hear music. I'm sorry. It comes up. No, no, no problem at all. Nature of the beast. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. All right, folks, we'll be back. Stay with us. You're listening to Peter Max Show. The antidote to tyranny is knowledge. And acting with courage to defend our most basic rights, life, liberty, and property. Dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Max. Welcome back. Thanks for staying with us tonight. Our first show with Stefan and Larkin. Stefan's website is freedomainradio.com. Larkin's is larkinrose.com. And they will both be speaking, as I understand it, at the roughly the same time at the People's Plaza in Philadelphia. Correct me, Larkin, if I've not said the full name of that or whatever. 
And then Stefan will be deba debating Michael Badnerik, who incidentally was the presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 2004. He will be debating him at 1230, I'm told, uh, or starting about 1230 at Drexel University, which is in the uh, Philadelphia area. So if you get a chance, you can see both these gentlemen live next week on July 4th and see Stefan debate a I guess we could say constitutionalist Michael Badnerik on Sunday, July 5th. So, Stefan, did you? You probably didn't quite finish your remarks on uh, uh, parenting and so forth. Oh yeah. So I mean, I mean, basically, the 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 advantage that parents have over children, if advantage is the right word, is that parents understand the long-term consequences of certain actions in a way that children just physically don't have the, the, the capacity to process at the time, right? And brains are immature and so on. So, uh, so I know that another candy bar is going to make her feel unwell or be bad for her teeth or something, so I'm going to have to sort of restrain that. Uh, but And that is uh, something which you don't do through force. You do through reason and, you know, if possible. But you just do that through making it unavailable, right? I mean, and so... Uh, so there's, I mean, infinite ways to to um, to get children to do the right thing, so to speak, without forcing them. You appeal to their self-interest. You appeal to their greed. You appeal to their desire for love, trust, and intimacy. And children, you, of course, you remember that children are not disobedient, right? That is always the great that the great sin of parenting is to think that the children owe you obedience, and that you, uh, if they don't obey you, they are being disobedient, and that is bad. That is not the case. If children do not owe you obedience, obedience is something that you have to earn from children through respectful and courteous and firm behavior. And uh, it is, uh, is something that most parents expect as a right, and then they get angry when the children don't give that right. But just like anyone who's entitled, nobody really wants to give anything to you. And so uh, I think just remembering that you have to woo and win the uh, love and affection and respect of your children, uh, even more so than you would your average adult, because children are so dependent upon you that, uh, and so dependent upon your power and your goodwill that uh, you have to have a very light touch and a very positive and enthusiastic touch with children in order to, to overcome the power disparity and earn true love and respect. So uh, that's certainly how I've been working things so far. So far, so good. Uh, I'll certainly talk perhaps a little more detail about it when we hit some of the uh, uh, older periods of my daughter's life, but that's what I've been up to so far. How old is your daughter now, Steph? She is six months, so it's six pretty months. young. That's great. That's great. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I didn't even know you had a daughter until we were talking on the phone and, you know, discussing this show and you were giving me your advice as I was asking you some questions about, you know, whether you're going to go forward to this or not. And I heard her crying in the background and that was my first, I thought, oh, he has a daughter now because I, I didn't know that. I'd listened to some of your podcasts about, you know, when you had met your wife and, you know, in comparison to some previous relationships you'd had, and I thought, well, that's great. That's great. So, oh, it's wonderful. Well, yeah, it's great. Um, again, if you want to call in, um, we have open lines here, as they say, 866-986-NEWS, uh, 866-986-6397. So, I mean, the thesis I'm getting from you guys is that if, if we had the kind of childhood and, and in general upbringing in not just, you know, in, in our, in our, from our parents, but in the rest of our social interaction, primarily with adults that respected us as human beings from the earliest ages on, that it's, 
perhaps less likely, but as you know, as you said, Steph, we can't know for sure because we don't live in that society. It's perhaps less likely that people would even be tolerant of the ideas of, of you know, a government and, and ideas like you brought up of uh, you know, a social contract. And I, I remember when I first encountered that idea, Steph and Larkin, I thought to myself, a social contract and the idea that you implicitly agree to it, I thought, well, that's almost an oxymoron because a con nobody would say you implicitly signed a contract. Here, here's your implicit signature on this contract. I mean, that's, I mean, a contract is something that you explicitly sign, right? So, uh, uh, you know, a social contract or an implicit contract, it seems to me, I, I don't know, that just struck me as odd the first time somebody sort of related what that meant to me. But um, anyway, um, we're all doing what we can. The purpose of the show is to try to educate people, at, at, at the very least, get them to think about this idea of, you know, why do we have government and on a practical level, what can we do? You guys are doing everything you can in terms of your writings and your podcasts and so forth. Um, you know, and we've talked about, as Larkin did a minute ago, you know, you can't beat people over the head. They'll either accept the ideas or not. They'll either show some receptivity to the idea, and if they don't, I agree with Larkin, it's probably best to walk away. Um, it reminded me, Larkin, as you were saying that, and I had to look it up, it reminded me of a, a quote by uh, Mark Twain, and it, it's, uh, he said, uh, never try to teach a pig to sing. It wastes time and it annoys the pig. And I thought about, you know, I mean, that sort of puts a, a person you're talking to as a comparison to a pig, and not that we want to, to do that, but it's, you know, I mean, if they're not receptive to the ideas, you know, it, it's a waste of time, and it, it probably annoys them more than it does any good. But, of course, you got to try, you, you know, if you're interested and you, you, you see an opening, as it were, in a conversation, it seems to me you got to try and, you know, drop some crumbs out there and see what kind of response you get to get from people. So, uh, you know, obviously the fact that, Stefan, your, your subscribership is growing apparently all the time means that there are a number of people that are receptive to these ideas. Um, I thought, you know, here I was a math professor for 13 and a half years. I thought, gosh, would it be really cool to have a course uh, in college on this subject? And, you know, have you guys be visiting lectures or professors or even found, um, you know, an institute for the study of anarchism at a, at a, a college? Could you imagine that? It, it, particularly maybe at the most liberal institution, either in Canada or in, or in the U.S., could you imagine an institute for the study of anarchism? <laughs> Well, what would the, what would the uh, you know 90 plus percent left leaning faculty at those institutions think of that? That would be that would be really fun, I think, to see what happens. But you know, maybe that's something that will happen down the line. Who knows? Um, you know, like you said, Stefan, a while back, if we each had 10 times the income we had, we could do a lot of interesting things. So, um, but go ahead. It, the the strange thing to me is. You know, I went through my own experience of, of basically claiming self-ownership and getting to the point where I realized, wow, I'm not beholden to anyone. I have to figure out what I should do, and I have to figure out what it is I want to accomplish and what I want to live for. And it's this, it's this strange paradox that people are trained to be slaves, and we're sort of in the position of going to the slaves and saying... Um, there's a way to escape. You know, if you run away, we know when the master isn't looking, there's a way to escape. And the slaves say, what? I don't want to escape. 
You know, I'm a good slave. I'm a good loyal slave. So you get in this weird position where, you know, I don't argue to people that they should be free for my convenience. Like, I don't know them. It's not going to do me any good whether they're a slave or free. Well, economically, a country full of free people would be a whole lot better for everybody. Sure. But it's it's because I want them to be allowed to be human beings. I don't like to see them enslaved, even if they're so comfortable with it that they get mad at me when I say, uh, maybe you should be free instead of being a slave. Which yep. is what makes it so frustrating. Yeah, well, we're... We're slaves to this time schedule here on the uh, on the schedule, so we'll be back, folks. Stay with us. You're listening to Peter Max Show and Stefan Molyneux and Larkin Rose, and I will be back here in a couple of The antidote to tyranny is knowledge. And acting with courage to defend our most basic rights, life, liberty, and property. Dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Max. Back in, folks, for staying with us. It's, uh, the t- I was just telling my board operator the time flies. I can't believe we've already been here for two and a half hours. We've got less than a half hour to go. I appreciate Stefan and Larkin staying up. I know I know for Larkin, who normally goes to bed at 8, this is a real stretch to stay this late. And uh, Stefan, I don't know what your working hours are, but uh, I appreciate you staying up late, too. So, uh, oh, I mean, it's uh, it's either here or, or I'm at a rave, so um, this is quieter, better for my ear, my ears. What, what did you say? Well, I'm either I'm either here or I'm at a rave, so this actually works uh, works fine. You're either here or at a what? A rave, R A V E. <laughs> the joke sounds better if I say it three times. A rave is a uh, a very light uh, dance party, often with ecstasy. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, see, that's. <laughs> <laughs> No. Mental note, remember the demographic when making age-specific humor. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Please go on with your show, and I'll just step back over that joke again to make sure it doesn't have any life left in it. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I thought you said you were at a raise or something. But, uh, <laughs> no. uh, anyway. Well, let me make a comment. I'm not sure if Larkin finished his comment, but he's probably falling asleep anyway. Uh, this 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 notion of this metamorphosis out of the, the thinking that you know there has to be a government whether you believe in you know this monstrosity that exists in Washington and our state capitals of which Larkin won't name uh, now or not it, it's the change is it, it is something that is uncomfortable but like any change and it it made me think of a book that I would recommend for people or at least think about the idea. The book is The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It was written way back in 1962, and I read it when I was six, uh, just kidding, uh, by Thomas Kuhn. And the idea is, I think, Mark, and you and I have discussed this before, uh, the idea is that um, scientific thought is held in paradigms, and it's very difficult for people, even in science, people you know who are sort of entrusted and motivated to have strict adherence to rationality and logic, if they view the world through a certain uh, lens, there you go, Larkin, through a certain way, then in a scientific way, a scientific theory, it's very hard for them to look at data which is contrary to that and not incorporate it in their paradigm. What does that say? Well, for example, 
you know, at one point way back in history, people thought that the planets rotated, uh, you know, and the sun rotated around the Earth, you know, I mean, because you look up in the sky and, you know, they see movement in the sky and so forth, so it, it's, it's a reasonable view. And then if data comes along contrary to that, if that's the, the um, current paradigm, it's very hard to look at things differently. So when we are out there, you know, talking to people and we say, you know, you know, violence is a bad thing, and they're like, oh, yeah, violence is terrible. And you say, well, do you understand that when the IRS collects money, it does so through the threat of violence? Well, but that's only for people that, you know, don't pay. Yeah, I understand that, but it's threatening violence for people to take money from them. And, and you know, people look at you kind of funny, like they really don't see it. It's, it's as if their paradigm of the world won't allow for the possibility that this creation, you know, called government is anything other than, you know, this benevolent, you know, nice super daddy in Washington or, you know, wherever. Yeah, the, the, the coer I mean, imagine uh, kids going to school and the uh, Somebody points out to them, you know, your teacher controls you through coercion. You know, you, you know, if you talk when you're not supposed to, you get punished. If you do what you're supposed to, you get rewarded. And the teacher is controlling you through coercion. And assuming they even knew what the words meant, they would go, yeah, so what's your point? Like, yeah. that's how it works. Right. And it's that way with government when you say, well, it's, it's backed by a threat. Well, yeah, if you don't pay your taxes or if you don't obey the law, of course they're going to do that. And they can't even they can't back up and and look at it, you know, from the beginning. Well, should they do that at all? It's just it's how things are and they can't they can't look at it without the assumption of, well, of course you need a ruling class and of course it passes laws and you can't just let people decide whether to obey them or not. Of course you have to have punishment. And there's this huge, of course this, of course that, of course the other thing, and they just they most of the time they can't even understand what you're asking. Like, well, what do you are you saying we shouldn't enforce taxes? And it's just it's so outside their assumptions of how the world works that they can't they can't see it for what it literally is. You know, if you literally describe it as that person's going to get your money by threatening to do unpleasant things to you. And they can't see it as that if it's called law and authority and it's, you know, they can see it if it's just a guy acting on his own. But if, right. it's, if it's called all the right things, legislation and authority and government, they can't see it for what it literally is. And that's just, that's so bizarre. It's what my, my talk about seeing our own lenses they really cannot see the literal truth right in front of them because they've been trained not to. And oh, I, I, I do disagree not. a little bit, though. I actually quite, I quite disagree. And just, just my, my thoughts on it is that, I mean, haven't you all noticed just how tense people get when you bring this up? I mean, they, they instantly, they, they get tense. They get, um, uh, conf they seem confused or frustrated, but, but they, they get very tense. Uh, and I think it's because they do see it. I think that people see it very clearly. Uh, I think that they don't like the implications that they're trained not to see it. 
But I think I think they see it very clearly. I don't think I mean it's such a simple argument and everybody knows. I mean everybody who's gotten a letter from the IRS is 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 shit scared, right? And is really terrified. And that is a um uh, that is an experience that everybody has gone through. Uh, you know, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, is something that nobody really believes. And so I think, I think they do see it. I think they see it very clearly, but I think it's just something that, that it's really, really unsettling for people to talk about. I don't know if that's a distinction without a difference, but I just wanted to throw that in. Well, yeah, I think it's, it's, basically being schizophrenic because they it's not that they don't know what happens if you don't comply they they do but i think they're scared to look at it in just the literal terms of they use violence to make you comply because they so much want it to be legitimate that they they don't they don't describe it in those terms even though they know full well unpleasant things happen if you don't do as you're told but they're scared to death to, to think of to think of that in terms that they'd think of it if anybody else did it. So I think they, yeah, I think they actually, they do see it in one way, and they try really hard not to. Stefan, do you think that they miss the moral aspect? Do you think, okay, they're sitting there terrified. I, I'm just wondering out loud, do they see that this, is morally no different than, you know, uh, the mafia down the street saying, if you don't comply, we're going to come break your kneecaps? Or is there something about, you know, their paradigm or something that prevents them from fully grasping the immorality of, of that, which is represented by the terrifying letter from the IRS or whatever? Yeah, I, I mean, it's an excellent question. Um, my, the, 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 reason that I, the reason that I say this, and just before I, I answer that, um, or try to, the reason that I say it is that if someone comes to me with something I genuinely don't know, I tend to be quite curious about it, especially if that person is kind of an expert, right? So someone comes up and starts talking to me about quantum physics or stuff that I don't have a huge deep knowledge of or anything like that. And I don't, I genuinely don't know it. I'm not going to instantly say, oh, you're wrong or I'm, or whatever, right? Because I'm not an expert. This person has studied it for years. So I'm going to ask them questions. I'm going to say, well, that seems confusing to me. Perhaps you could explain. So any intelligent person who doesn't know the answer is not just going to immediately start stonewalling someone who has studied it for years. And so when people who studied philosophy or political science or economics or libertarianism for years come up and say statism is forced, taxation is the initiation of violence, the fact that people aren't curious, don't, I mean, just about everyone, they're not curious, they don't want to know more, and they start giving you all of these silly non-answers means that they know something that they're avoiding because there's way too many intelligent people out there who should at least be curious about the the considered opinions of experts in the field, but they're not. They just immediately start stonewalling you. So there must be something that they know that they would behave in such a different manner. So that was sort of my first clue, uh, comparing it to just other things, right? So, oh, <laughs> good thing I didn't go for a long rant because I hear the music coming back. <laughs> well, but this is just a semicolon on your rant. <laughs> That's right. All right. We'll be back after the semicolon, folks. Hang with us. And if you want to call in and talk to one of these brilliant gentlemen, you can do so at 866-986-6397. The 
antidote to tyranny is knowledge. And acting with courage to defend our most basic rights, life, liberty, and property. Dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Mack. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to the first edition of the Peter Mack Show on Liberty news radio right here on the internet if you want to email me at any time you can do so at peter at petermacshow.com that's peter mac show peter mac is just an ac like mac computer and the word show petermacshow.com um and i suppose you can email either of the other two gentlemen larkin if somebody wants to email you can they do so through larkinrose.com or is there another way how do they get on your list uh, well, the easy way to email me now is larkin at larkinrose.com. No more remembering a really obscure email address. And if they just send me a, an email saying, yeah, I want to be on your email list, then I'll put them on it myself. And, Stefan, what about you? Uh, host at freedomainradio.com. And so, uh, sorry, if we if can just finish up the, the two-second thought that I had to... to Try not to take sure. you past uh, past the hour. Um, so, if you well, so when you bring taxation is forced, government is forced. Two people, a little shiver goes through their, the, I think, the very core of their being into their very soul because they know it's true. Of course, they know it's true. They see cops with guns. They're the only people who've got guns, except for I don't know, security guards or something. They see. Um, they know that there's war. They know that prison guards have truncheons. This is not. Uh, something that is uh, obscure to people. This is not like the world is round to uh, a caveman, right? This is something they see. Uh, uh, they see cop shows. They see cops blowing people away all the time, right? You don't see a lot of doctor shows where the doctors are blowing people away. So it's not hard for people <laughs> to figure out. Right. But, but what happens is the fact that the violence that is at the core of social organization, the initiation of violence, the immorality of violence that is at the core of their social organization is something that they, because they, they say, the, the, the shark hits them, that it's actually been said, that it's actually been spoken. And it goes through them and it says, oh, well, you know, the media never talks about this. I wonder why. My teachers in public school who were funded through the threats of violence against my parents, they never talked about it. My parents never talked about it. My friends never talk about it. My colleagues, my bosses, nobody ever talks about this one fundamental thing that we should understand about our society, that it's founded on violence. Like, there are slaves everywhere, and no one ever talks about slavery, right? I mean, because the moment you talk about it, it starts to crumble. So what happens is when you simply bring that statement to people, it threatens to unplug them from this matrix of avoidance, right? That we can only maintain this violence by pretending it's not there. It's this huge elephant in the room, to take a psychological metaphor. And so because people won't talk about it, the violence continues, and they understand the moment they start to talk about it, they're going to face all the opposition. They're going to really understand the nature of their society, which is that 99% of what passes for communication in society is the rank avoidance of that which is immoral, that which is violent, that which is destructive. And they're not going to like what that says about their personal relationships, about their families, about their teachers, about their employees, about they don't want to take that stand because they know that there's a, a very good reason why so few people do, because it targets you pretty heavily. Could you, I mean, could you elaborate on a little bit? I mean, for, I, I follow what you're saying to the point that 
okay, it's, yeah, it's going to be very painful if somebody really stops to consider what society is based upon. But is it because they're going to say, for example, God, why didn't anybody, why didn't my teachers talk about this? Why didn't my parents talk about this? Why don't we talk about this now? What, what, what do you think is going to be so disturbing for them? Well, they know, they know, they know what's going to happen if they start bringing this up with people. They're going to get attacked. They're going to get labeled crazy. They're going to be rejected. They're going to hostility. They might suffer negative job consequences. Their careers. Their, you know, there's so many negative consequences to it that people just kind of shy away from it because it's like, well, so I talk about it. It's not going to bring down the government. It's not going to change society. All that's going to happen is I'm going to keep running into this, uh, uh, this wall over and over again of people's hostility and indifference and not wanting to be woken up. So people make a kind of rational calculation. Net gain, uh, not really anything. Net loss, I mean, except for we three who, you know, and other people, right, who make the rational calculation and say, well, uh, the life of virtue is not something that you weigh in, in the balance, right? It's not something that you say, well, you know, if I get three bucks more an hour, I'll be virtuous, right? This is something that you, you dedicate yourself to as a principle. But most people are just going to make an efficiency calculation and say, uh, I can't change it uh, and I'm going to suffer enormously um, if I bring it up. So let's just, but, but I also don't want to face that I'm frightened to bring up the truth because I'm afraid that people are going to attack me because then I can't sit down with my friends and my family as if we're all just, you know, happy people with no problems uh, and we're not avoiding anything. So what I'm going to do is make up a whole bunch of nonsense to just obscure it all, like the social contract and like all the democracy and all the, the nonsense that you hear being talked about in terms of, quote, political analysis, because I don't want to stand up for what's right. And I don't want to look in the mirror and say, I'm avoiding standing up for what is right and what is basically true. And so is everyone around me. So people just weasel themselves into a kind of fog, uh, which is impossible to penetrate and just exhaust anyone who tries. And uh, that's how they maintain this sort of illusion of some sort of self-respect. I think there may be sort of an existential obstacle even for them to even admit it to themselves because they, you know, you're trained all your life to, to respect authority and to measure your own goodness by whether you play by the rules and do as you're told. And, you know, one of my favorite phrases is law-abiding taxpayer, which people <laughs> use synonymously with good person. Obedient equals good. And if that is your position, it's basically like somebody coming along and saying, um, you know the God you've worshipped your whole life? He's an evil poo-head. And people don't want to think he's an evil poo-head. So when you point out um, your God robs people, is violent, he's a criminal, and people are so, you know, I'm a law-abiding taxpayer, I'm good, I do as I'm told, they don't want to hear that because to them that means you've been, like, proud to be obedient to something that's just evil. And who wants to say, yeah, I'm proud to be obedient to a big, evil, horrible monster? So I think they really, they try to not see their, to not see, to, to not <laughs> see their master for the evil poo head he is. Because they've been so faithful to him all these years that they don't want to see how evil he is. I mean, you can see that in plenty of countries that turn a, the, the people turn a blind eye to how evil their leaders are this country and lots of other ones and I think it's just the same thing they don't they don't want to admit that that thing that they secretly know is nasty and violent 
but they don't want to admit that it's the bad guy because it's what they were taught to respect and obey. They turn our whole world upside down if you have to admit that you're, at the very least, turning away from violence and not admitting it and allowing it to happen. If you're a teacher and you admit that your whole job is based upon money taken from people by force to give you a job uh, to address kids that are forced by compulsory attendance laws to appear in your classroom every day, if you have to admit that, that, that could be an unbelievably painful experience, I would think. Well, and your job as a teacher would end at that moment, because how could you conceivably ask children to obey you as a moral authority, how could you how could you conceivably say to children you should not bully each other when they're there by force and you're paid by force? When the whole foundation of the building that they're in and 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 everything that that, that put in front of them is founded on violence, how are you conceivably going to tell children to issue violence and, and to obey the teacher as a moral authority? The whole system can't work can't work even children would be able to see it and say well how come i'm not allowed to take this toy or how come i'm not allowed to take lunch money from this kid when your whole paycheck comes from you waving guns at people's faces the whole system would collapse if if the violence is simply looked at for more than a millisecond of shameful avoidance wow well and yet that's what we're trying to do right we're trying to get people to look at this for more than a millisecond so they can wake up and experience that painful metamorphosis that all three of us have done um, and, and several people are in the process of it. It's just, yeah, I don't know. Well, this is the heroic place to be, right? I mean, I actually would prefer to be here. I'm sort of a bit of a born fighter, right? So for, I'd actually prefer to be here than a hundred years from now when these problems are solved because I think there's more honor, more glory, and it's certainly better to my warrior tastes than something where the problems have been solved. So for me, it's a great place to be. But I know that for a lot of people, I don't think you guys, it's, it's uncomfortable for some. Well, and it's exciting because the, because to see the change, once we're in the kind of world that the three of us desire, then, I mean, then, then you don't experience the contrast of having gone to it, right? It's It's like, you know... I mean, it's it's like when you feel if you feel good all the time, you never. It's not quite the. I'm not saying this. It's not quite the same as if you've been in pain and suddenly the pain is relieved. Mm. What an experience that is, right? Yeah. Well, I know you guys got things to do next week, but um, I'll be back here next week, folks, with the show. And I hope Larkin and Stefan will be regular guests, and we shall see. But anyway, get to Philadelphia if you can. Tune in next week. Send me an email at Peter at Peter Mac Show, and I will be here at 9 o'clock Central Time next Saturday, July 4th. Have a good Thanks, day. Peter. Thanks, Larkin. Great to meet you guys. Thank you.